Hello and welcome to Cracking Krakoa number 30. This is a review of X-Men number 5 by Jonathan Hickman and Powers of Ten artist R.B. Silva in a fantastic continuation of the series' first issue and the Mike Carey written run of X-Men from the mid to late 2000s. Today I'll be answering, who the heck are the children of the vault and why are they such a threat? Who is Sink and what do his resurrection challenges mean for Krakoa? And why one small character moment between Laura Kinney and Logan is such a big deal? Hey, if you like the CBH YouTube channel or podcast, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of comicbookherald.com. I run everything over there, and your appreciation and sharing is greatly appreciated by me. You can find full X-Men and comic book reading orders over on comicbookherald.com and links in the show notes. As the recap page reminds us, in X-Men number 1 by Hickman and Lionel Francis Yu, the X-Men's raid of an Orcus mutant prison also revealed and freed Serafina, one of the children of the vault. The issue opens with Wolverine, Logan, hunting Serafina through Ecuador before eventually losing the temporally accelerated and enhanced individual in the jungles and to the fabled vault. In a striking image by R.B. Silva, whose style absolutely slays throughout this issue, to the point that I'm desperate for Silva to take over as the ongoing series artist, the vault door used by Serafina is under what appears to be a defunct master mold, presumably the same one the children were hiding out in, that was previously used as a base by Cassandra Nova in New X-Men. As Wolverine tells Cyclops, the X-Men will have to find another way to get Serafina in their custody. The first and most obvious question here is, the children of the what now? Hickman and company didn't attempt much over-explanation for Seraphina's appearance in X-Men number 1, but here we get to hear Hickman summarize the elements of Mike Carey and Chris Bacalo's work in the pages of X-Men number 192 to 197 in a story titled Supernovas. Of course, in order to explain the vault, Hickman uses another X-Men reference calling Back to the World, which is a Weapon X isolated environment created during Grant Morrison's run on new X-Men, a Hickman favorite. The world is used to run evolutionary experiments in rapid time, creating a space where an entirely contained reality can play out while only moments of time on Earth actually pass. When I think of the world, I tend to think of Phantomax as the Weapon Plus program survivor, and Debonair Thief brings Wolverine and Cyclops to the world facility during New X-Men, and also uses the world during Rick Remender's run on Uncanny X-Force in order to raise Ensabonur like he's Clark Kent. For real, but we don't need to dig into that right this second. There's a really interesting line in X-Men number 5 where Professor X says, I cannot stress this enough. The children of the vault represent the greatest existential threat to mutantum, and we know nothing about them. Not really. Assuming the professor isn't just full of his usual hyperbole and bluster, it begs the question how the vault is really all that different from known concepts like the world, and why that would contribute to mutant kind's single greatest threat. Hickman makes the distinction that the vault is based on human adaptation along technological lines, which sounds very much the most like the most substantial threats identified in House of X and Powers of Ten, Omega Sentinels, Master Molds, Nimrods, and eventually the likes of the Phalanx. It's actually a very interesting distillation of one of the series' broadest themes, this idea of evolution versus technological advancement. Humans merging with technology is a threat to mutants, whether it's the Omega Sentinels and spawning religions of a hundred years into the future, or the desire to assimilate with the phalanx 1,000 years into the future. Looking back at the Carrie Bacalo story, the Children of the Vault definitely do fit into Professor X's fears of the ultimate threat. The children consider themselves Earth's superior inheritors and plan to wipe the planet clean so their enhanced kind can ascend. It's a clever dark mirror of motivations we've frequently seen from mutant kind, most commonly from the likes of Apocalypse or Magneto. 
There's a hard sci-fi angle to the children that can definitely lead to a dark rabbit hole of trying to explain precisely how their enhanced nature is different than mutant evolution, but if you're willing to just take the comic book science as it stands, or really, really understand genetic drift on Mike Carey's level, Carey and now Hickman are very intentionally stating that children are still another kind of species, closest to human, but definitely not mutant. It's worth calling out, too, that although the X-Men, led by Rogue, ultimately prevail against the Children of the Vault in their first encounter, they also frequently get their butts kicked, and actually have to resort to Lady Mastermind and Mystique killing some of the children, which is obviously not the typical X-Men way, although if you're reading X-Force these days, let's just say that no-killing-humans rule is getting mighty, mighty flexible. Seraphine is one of these original Children of the Vault, although many of the core original Bacalo designs die in the original story arc. According to the Vault, though, there are many pods of new children at the ready, which is of course a clear parallel to Krakoa's own pods, or even Mr. Sinister's Shimmeras from the pages of Powers of Ten. Again, the Vault has more similarities than differences with Krakoa. Honestly, if the Vault's mission statement was simple acceptance and severity instead of, you know, genocide, they'd basically be Krakoa. I do love, too, how Silva and Hickman's techno-data design of the vault pages instantly feels like a continued thread from the pages of Powers of Ten. Pages set inside the vault are like entering a machine reality with its own set of dimensions and rules, a la those first Steve Ditko magical realms in the pages of Silver Age Doctor Strange, or, as a reader on Twitter pointed out to me, like the Maker's designs in the Marvel Ultimate Universe comics written by Hickman. I do think it's interesting to consider who the villains of the X-Men universe can be in a Krakoa era where the most familiar rogues gallery is a part of the community now. With the knowledge of House of X and Powers of Ten, certainly the most interesting threats are those that aren't just current threats, but threaten to prevent mutant safety hundreds if not thousands of years into the future. Given the focus on Nimrod, Sentinels, and Orcus in the event kickoff, it makes a ton of sense to move to another form of non-mutant technological enhancements with the Children of the Vault. If you look across the Dawn of X lineup as it stands, the threats are either internal, in the case of Marauders and the schemes of Sebastian Shaw, magical, in the case of Excalibur, or tied to the same vein of human genetic enhancement. X-Force is full of militant human groups surgically weaponizing their own bodies to approximate mutant abilities, and Fallen Angel's biggest threat is a literal god of technology designing competing drugs with Krakoa. In order to infiltrate the vault and end this threat, Cyclops and team select three very specific mutants fit for the task. Wolverine, Laura Kinney, Sink, and Darwin. The selections are made based on the mutant's ability to cross the temporal threshold of the vault. So in Laura's case, her healing factor, and for Darwin and Sink mimicking Darwin's abilities, the ability to adapt to any environment. A lot has been made of the death of death in the Krakoa era, but yet again, the vault supplies another compelling way to complicate the apparent paradise. It's pointed out several times that the team infiltrating the vault will be exposed to hundreds, if not thousands of years of accelerated time, and that the X-Men will not be able to monitor their progress until they escape with the desired intel. This is a tremendous ask, barely comprehensible, and completely outside the safety net net of Krakoa's resurrection protocols. I imagine we'll reach a stage of of exceptions, but remember too that without a proven death, resurrection protocols cannot even begin, meaning these characters could truly be trapped inside the vault for an untold amount of time. In terms of Krakoa-wide updates, there are some particularly intriguing details included in Sink's medical report. Sink, aka Everett Thomas, is a mutant introduced in the mid-90s and most typically associated with the Scott Lobdell and Chris Bacalo era of Generation X. It's also worth noting Sink's origins in the Marvel Universe are tied to the original Phalanx saga, which is of course relevant given the Phalanx presence and powers of 10. 
One of the biggest takeaways for me was that during Resurrection, the Five actually improved Sync's natural physical ability. As the data page says, the Resurrected version is operating at a 4% increase. What this tells me is that the Five are changing mutants as they bring them back, which feels significant. We haven't really seen the Dawn of X dig too deep into the impact of Resurrection. For the most part, it just works. Here, though, we see this idea that mutants are evolving through the process of resurrection. These tie to questions I've had most directly with Professor X, who has experimented with variants and mental backups and husks. So already we have Professor X who can walk, Jean Grey seemingly devoid of the Phoenix and any remnants, Wolverine with adamantium reupholstered. The question for me becomes how custom fit can Krakoa take the resurrection process? Likewise, given the assessment of Sink's psychological challenges upon resurrection, the character died in Generation X number 70, which is a long time ago in the Marvel Universe, there's so much to explore about what it means to be resurrected. In short, I can't wait for Leigh Williams and David Baldion's X-Factor, which promises to dig into resurrection-specific questions. Finally, I can't walk away from this issue, which is quite excellent, without at least mentioning the most discussed panel, with Laura Kinney asserting her roles as Wolverine, and Logan returning to his role as proud father figure, who also happens to be her clone origin, a classic role in literature. This is meaningful because after 2014's Death of Wolverine, Laura Kinney grew into the role of the Marvel Universe all-new Wolverine until about 2018. In this series, written by Tom Taylor, Laura Kinney, the one-time X-23, truly became one of Marvel's best legacy characters, impossibly well-suited for the role she was filling, it's the role she was designed to play. Since that time, though, Marvel's overarching editorial vision has clearly focused on returning Laura to the X-23 up-and-comer role in order to make room for the original Logan as Wolverine. For anyone who has actually read All-New Wolverine, this is kind of an absurd sell. It's like Dick Grayson returning to the Robin Pixie costume, and the characterization of Laura has reached all-time lows in the pages of Dawn of X's own Fallen Angels. So yes, it's heartwarming and feels like an enormous victory to see Hickman and Silva validating the All-New Wolverine experience. For me, it's yet another instance that Hickman gets what's good about X-Men throughout the franchise's history and has the narrative weight to restore it to being a part of the Marvel Universe proper. That's my review of X-Men number five. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you have comments, thoughts, questions about the show or about the issue, I'd love to hear them here on the YouTube channel, of course, at Herald, anyone on social, or over on comicbookherald.com, where I'll be reviewing and talking about all sorts of comic book analysis and reading order guides. Check out CBH. I'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, everybody, thanks for listening, and enjoy the comics. <laughs>